Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. We continue our discussion on the subject of fiscal policies in extractive industries. My guest today is Perin Teledano. Perin heads the mining and energy team of the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investments at Columbia University. Among others, she leads research, training, and advisory projects on the impact of the energy transition on extractive industry investments. Perrin also leads work on governance of extractive industries, including on fiscal regimes and climate change. Perrin and I have known each other for the last 10 years, though we haven't spoken. So Perrin, welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. It's very nice to finally catch up with you. Thanks a lot, Sheila. Very pleased to be here with you. So Perrin, can you tell me why are fiscal policies important to the extractive sector? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, basically, the extractive sector functions differently from another sector. The project economics is particular. And for this reason, uh, it calls on a, a fiscal regime that, that is uh, specific to the extractive sector. For instance, uh, there is a relatively long period without revenues and only costs. There are many externalities to be internalized with tax. There is a potential for what we call super profit or rent. So all in all, um, I would say that the design of the fiscal regime will determine whether the attractive sector will be attractive to the investors and at the same time, whether it will bring the much needed domestic revenues to the state and or uh, the communities. Right, so, so in other words, the fiscal policies don't just matter to the uh, host countries, they also matter to the investors. This is exactly right. So, so really, you could then say that an ideal fiscal policy must take regard of the interest of the country as well as the interest of the investors. Otherwise, in the end, they don't serve any purpose. Yes, exactly. And this is actually possible uh, to meet uh, the goals and objective of both stakeholders. Uh, it, it doesn't need to be a zero sum game. Uh, and at the same time, it will guarantee the stability of the deal uh, without tools that are problematic like, uh, like a stabilization clause or an arbitration clause and things that uh, you would uh, want to avoid as a government. Hmm. So let's then look at it from a different perspective. Extractive resources are finite. And so when one thinks of developing these resources, one thinks of the importance of sustainable development. What then is the link between fiscal policy and the uh, goal of achieving sustainable development of the resources? Yes, I think there are a few uh, links, um, but what I see as being primordial to understand is that in many resource-rich countries, the extractive sector is the mainstay of uh, the economy. So for that reason, this is fundamental for the country to be able to raise the adequate amount of tax from the extractive project in order to be able to fund 
sustainable development priorities such as education, health, and infrastructure. Basically turning this finite resource into um, long-term assets. And very often in uh, resource-rich developing countries, this link is being lost. There is a focus on tax collection that is not always um, successful, but this is another story. The, the link is not being created enough with revenue investment and spending into uh, the development priorities in the country. Mm -hmm. so, so put another way, uh, when governments think of uh, fiscal policies, when governments think of why they are developing the resource, the goal must be to turn this finite resource uh, into something that is more longer term with potential capacity to regenerate income, uh, as opposed to the typical focus on mere long short-term gain. Is that what you're saying? Yes, this is exactly right. And, and, and um, there are systems to put in place to make it work. Uh, Long-term planning, uh, medium-term expenditure framework, um, the capacity to uh, earmark uh, resource revenues to development priorities. There are many uh, public financial management tools that could be developed in order to ensure uh, that finite resources are transformed into long-term assets. So many people always speak about uh, resource-rich uh, countries in emerging markets as lacking capacity. Uh, you know, these financial management systems that you're talking about, how uh, available are they in terms of skills and capacity in many uh, resource-rich countries? Is that perhaps one of the major gaps between uh, sustainable development of resources and lack thereof? Yeah, for me, this is a major gap. Uh, the, the World Bank and the IMF and other uh, donors uh, are available for that to provide this technical assistance uh, on these specific topics. I'm, I'm not so sure and that uh, the knowledge is actually uh, transferred or, or, or adequately transferred um, because the, the gap remains and, and there is not enough understanding of this need to recycle and the finite, the finite resources into uh, long-term assets. And this, yeah. So, so there is some, something that is, that is being mixed, missed in uh, the communications on how to leverage extractive industries for uh, development. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was wondering, uh, Perrin, whether the miss, while the capacity gap might be one of the missing links, um, is perhaps another important issue, the question of governance, which is to say uh, the political will to steward development of resources for the benefit of all. What, what if anything, is there a link between fiscal policies and governance? Yeah, so, so again, I think we can create a few links, but there is one a very important link that stems from uh, the fiscal, financial, or regulatory incentives that are granted 
in the context of negotiated contracts behind closed doors. And these incentives could supersede the law, be ineffective, uh, lead to money leakages, and uh, on top of it, considerably reduce the ability of the government to levy a fair amount of taxes uh, out of the project. Um, so, you know, you could create many links, uh, but I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they could possibly be subsumed under that broader uh, uh, concept of fiscal, financial, or regulatory incentives. Hmm. So, are there any specific guiding principles uh, for policymakers designing fiscal uh, regimes? Are there any sort of best practice principles? I think they are at a high level. Uh, and I'm saying high level because um, uh, fiscal regimes need to fit uh, country circumstances, such as uh, the quality of the geology and also the government policy objectives. And so to, to go back to this high level, um, Usually, we said that the fiscal design should be relatively simple, meaning avoiding uh, the multiplication of taxes or incentives that are not effective. The design should be neutral in the sense that the fiscal regime should minimize uh, what is called the distortion of the decision to invest by the investors. And third, um, and most importantly, the fiscal regime should be tax uh, progressive. And um, by progressive, we mean that the fiscal burden should self-adapt to uh, the capacity of the project to pay. So in other words, to its uh, profitability. Mm. In, in other words, you, you can't be arbitrary in terms of uh, how much tax you levy on a project. You have to look at its genuine economic capacity to sustain that level of taxation, which, which I guess makes sense because if you, if you don't, then probably you're going to destroy the very project on which you are dependent, if not uh, simply outright, uh, you know, uh, loose investments. So it, it seems to make sense. The, the question then, Perrine, is, you know, um, you've got governments on one side, you've got investors on another, is there agreement on what a progressive regime looks like? And, or is, I mean, these principles, do both parties subscribe to them or do we still see differences in the way investors and governments view fiscal policies? Yes, for me, progressive regimes are the key to reconcile both views. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, progressive regime, they self-adapt. So it's not that each time that you have a project, you analyze its profitability and you put in place a project-specific fiscal regime. It's basically a fiscal regime that has built-in uh, flexibility. Um, and what needs to be understood as well is that it protects the investors in case of a negative change in the project economics. So it works both ways. And the other way, obviously, is that progressive regime ensure that the government tech proportionally increases when the project economics improves, thanks to an increase in prices or decreasing cost. Um, so uh, the, the, the fact that progressive regimes work both ways, um, 
I think for me is key to this reconciliation of objectives because otherwise they could act, you could consider that government and investors um, really deeply differ in the sense that investors want a minimum tax burden while governments want uh, you know the, the, want to maximize uh, taxes. Um, there is also another problem is that uh, given uh, the policy policy uh, political cycle sorry and, and the funding needs, government want to raise money right away through bonuses and royalties, whereas these taxes are regressive and can be uh, quite distortionary for the decision to invest on the part of the investors. Um, so, so progressive regimes and some and government are not necessarily uh, fully aware and educated on their effectiveness, but it enables uh, this flexibility that then reduces uh, politically driven fiscal reforms um, and at the same time obviate the need for, uh, for instance, a stabilization clause that wastefully creates several generations of contract, complicates the task of the tax administration, and then uh, together with arbitration clauses, uh, freezes the government ability to uh, regulate for the public interest. Uh, yeah, I mean, mm, to a lay person, Karina, this makes perfect sense. What I don't understand is if there is such a basic principle which not only introduces uh, objectivity, but stabilizes the uh, regulatory environment, as well as uh, gives assurances to both parties, why do we still find governments wanting to introduce windfall tax when there's a boom when in effect this variability of the regime based on our level of probability could fundamentally take care of that why do governments not uh, very quickly appear to accept this uh, principle in your experience uh, perin so there, there is a huge political driver uh, again, uh, to when a project starts, you want to put in place bonuses and high royalties in order to collect uh, taxes, you know, uh, right away and to show uh, the citizens that you are the government levying the taxes, whereas progressive taxes really bring revenues um, down the road after a few years when the current government that signed the deal might not be in power. Um, so, so there is some some political uh, political economy dynamic going on here. There is also the fact that, from the perspective of the tax administration, um, it's possibly more difficult to design uh, and to collect. So it requires uh, more sophistication in fiscal design and, and in uh, and in the tax administration. Um, so, and third, a capacity gap again. Um, so I think these are the three main reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, you know, one of the interesting uh, things you, you said is, it's not just about the economics uh, uh, varying because of the market and the price of the commodity. Do you know, Perrin, it's not unusual when geologists first make a discovery that they can either overstate the economic value or understated. And the, the, if you don't take account of that potential variability, you, you could find that either you overtax or you undertaxed. But if you have this uh, 
progressive system, it wouldn't matter because as soon as the project becomes more profitable because the ore is, high, is higher grade than previously assumed, mm-hmm. you know, the, the government would be there to benefit. But now, mm-hmm. in the absence of that, the government has to know that the geological uh, profile has changed. Uh, mm-hmm. That means somebody must be willing to voluntarily uh, inform or for that matter, a government has the capacity to themselves audit uh, the deposit, which isn't always the case. So I think you are right that the political expediency, unfortunately, not only creates an unnecessary complexity, but actually it could end up compromising the government's own goal in the long run, which I, I think is, is, is a pity. Okay. So, Perrin, we, we, we've spoken about uh, the importance of fiscal policies. Uh, we've spoken about trends. We've spoken about what, what is best practice. But I wanted to find out from you, do you see any emerging trends based on geographic regions? Say, for instance, is uh, Sub-Sahara showing the same tendencies to, uh, as Latin America? And is Latin America showing the same tendencies as Southeast uh, Asia when it comes to designing and implementing of fiscal policies? Yeah, so so I'll, I'll, I'll speak both to uh, possibly the trends in two specific features uh, that I've seen in certain regions that are not in others. Uh, and I'll start with that, actually, if you don't mind. Um, so, for instance, in Asia, this is an area where you can find the rare instances of profit sharing contracts in the mining sector. So, for instance, you would find them in uh, the Philippines, whereas it's it's a, a, a tool that is mostly um, applicable to the oil sector. I mean, not only applicable, but but just used in the oil sector, um, and it's actually uh, being used in the mining sector in the Philippines, whereas you wouldn't you would find this very rarely in other regions. So it's it's a, it's an interesting uh, feature there, and then in Latin America you would find this interesting feature of saying to the investors, um, if you want a stabilization clause, then you pay a higher royalty. So the stabilization clause comes with a premium. Um, So, and it's also something that I'm not finding in other regions. Now there is a trend uh, that is affecting all regions, which is the trend uh, related to uh, the decarbonization agenda. Because with uh, the decarbonization agenda comes uh, the emergence of the green technologies, and these are uh, mining intensive and sometimes requiring minerals uh, that were not uh, mined so much uh, in the past, in the recent past, typically uh, lithium or cobalt or graphite. And these are minerals that the world has that for which um, the, the world demand was not that high uh, just five years ago. Um, and worldwide, uh, the, 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 re, the, the demand forecasts have prompted this government to realize that these are strategic minerals. They even reclassify them as strategic minerals. And uh, they resort how the fiscal regime uh, should be uh, for these minerals, increasing uh, the royalty rates or putting in place uh, windfall taxes and so on. 
Hmm. So when you so so what you're saying is that what you're seeing more than uh, similar trends, there's certain peculiarities that you see in uh, different regions where they, they seem to not apply uh, in other uh, regions. So it, it seems to me then that quite apart from the challenge of designing fiscal policies, implementation, especially because you refer to capacity, mm -hmm. seems to be a, a major issue. What in your experience are some of the real challenges of implementing fiscal policies, even when they have been properly designed? Yes, so, so there are challenges uh, that are linked to uh, various trade-offs that I think we started to discuss, Sheila. One is that um, there is a trade-off between progressivity and ease of administration with the simplest fiscal tools to administer, also the least progressive, whereas the most complicated are the most progressive. There is also a trade-off uh, between fiscal credibility and ease of, of uh, administration. Um, the regressive tools um, are easy to administer, but when profitability increases, the government tech decreases and it gives the impetus for fiscal reform and uh, to change the, the fiscal terms. So these are points uh, that we discussed already, but I think are worth mentioning again. And then there is another major challenge that I think is not so much discussed and not so much uh, realized by government is the interaction between the double tax agreement and the domestic fiscal regime. Um, with uh, the, the double uh, tax agreement defining concepts that uh, constrain the taxing rights of uh, the source countries where the minerals are. And policymakers really rarely realize uh, what's going on there. So uh, my guess uh, is that if policymakers don't realize, <laughs> the, the followers of the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast realize even less. So could you just explain for us uh, what the concept of uh, double taxation and, and how that potentially uh, disenfranchises host countries, please? Yes. So double, the intention of double tax agreement is to avoid double taxing, meaning being taxed both in your residence country um, and where you have your operations in the source country. Um, so it's to it's to avoid that double taxation risk. Um, what you know, it was the original intent when they were uh, created a long time ago. Now, at the same time, they define which rights the residents countries have, uh, have. Sorry, which taxing rights the residents countries have, and which taxing rights the source countries have. By doing so, they say that. For instance, um, capital gains tax or withholding tax and dividends is not within the taxing rights of the source countries. And it means that if you, in your own domestic regime, uh, you say, oh, I want to put in place a withholding tax on, of 20% on the, on the dividends that, that are being paid to foreign shareholders, this tax will be nullified 
by the clause that is in the double tax agreement that says withholding, withholding tax on dividends is not part of the social rights. Does mm. that make sense? It does, it does. Basically what you're saying is the, the treaties determine uh, who between the two parties is entitled to levy what type of tax. And, mm -hmm. and that progressively uh, you could find a situation in which the bulk of the tax revenue uh, accrues to the investors country of residence and not the source country where the resource that has been developed, which is the driver of the revenue is based. Mm -hmm. and, and that th this is the tension and that in entering into these agreements, Imagine markets, policymakers don't pay attention to these implications, sign off on the uh, treaties and end up having disadvantaged themselves. Th that is sort of what you're saying, right? This is exactly right. Mm, my God. So it really does mean that uh, a huge part of designing policies is also understanding what international treaties you've signed on to with respect to tax treaties, with respect to arbitration treaties, with respect to all elements that though not spelled out in a development agreement will come to pass once you implement it, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And th the thing is that this kind of treaties, I mean, for instance, if you think about uh, a bilateral investment uh, treaty that leads to all these um, disputes in arbitration courts, uh, they are being signed by foreign ministries, foreign affairs ministries, sorry. Um, whereas um, the contracts will be signed by uh, mining ministers. Um, so this disconnect between the type of ministries that is in charge and responsible for signing the agreement leads to total miscommunication and miscoordination that uh, at the end of the day undermines um, the, the, the the sound uh, domestic ability to, to regulate in favor of the public interest. Mm. But, but uh, it also speaks to, because to be fair, developing countries are not the only ones with uh, resource ministries and uh, foreign affairs ministries and finance, et cetera. So, so it must speak to minimally a lack of coordination, because if you think about it, every government has its own legal firm, the attorney general's office. And so presumably if these things, these agreements are checked properly to ensure that they don't conflict with existing ones, the same way you would do when you design a law, you would sweep your entire pieces of legislation to see that the new law does not contradict. I mean, it's a lot of work. I don't want to belittle it, but it's doable surely, Perina. Yeah, it is completely doable, of course. And, and also if the government has overall policy objectives, this objective will guide what each minister um, signs. Exactly right. In other words, you know, it's not up to each minister what direction the country is taking. If mm -hmm. the, the, the development direction is already determined, that de facto becomes your point of reference on everything you do. And, and, mm -hmm. and when you evaluate these policy options, you will say, but do they serve the ultimate goal? And, and in this case, if, we, if sustainable development is the ultimate goal, then we would all go towards that. So my sense is that the, the lack of coordination is a key problem. 
uh, mm -hmm. but also the, the very thing you mentioned earlier, which is um, the tendency towards political expediency and to focus on political benefits rather than sovereign benefits. My mm -hmm. sense is that it is this tension that creates a problem more than capacity. And here's why. So, so I, I look at myself and I look at you and I'm, I'm thinking, it can't take two generations to produce 10 fiscal policy experts in any country. It can't. So my sense is that you've got the people, but perhaps not the discipline and the, the political will. But I mean, that's a matter for another time. Uh, I, <laughs> here and now, at least you have added, I think, an, an important level of clarity in terms of some of uh, the constraints. You mentioned the whole uh, process of decarbonization earlier. And I wanted to just, uh, if I may follow up on that to say, uh, what if any uh, other likely impacts of decarbonization on fiscal policies in extractives? And, and I wonder whether you think there's a difference in the way that uh, decarbonization might affect fiscal policies in minerals uh, and fiscal policies in petroleum. Do you see any impacts in these two separate uh, sectors in the short term? Yes, very much so. Um, starting with oil and gas, um, there is a big impact. Uh, fossil fuel rich countries are understanding that the days of fossil fuels are counted, but for most of them, instead of maximizing the government tech to accumulate revenues to reinvest in the energy transition, most of them actually release tax incentives and relax the, fax, the fiscal regime in the hope to attract investors when this is still uh, possible. Mm -hmm. um, so there is an interesting uh, paradox, at least uh, to, my, to my perspective, but it might appear uh, very uh, logical uh, um, to uh, fossil fuel uh, rich government. Um, and then the other thing that I mentioned um, just before Sheila about these minerals that are becoming strategic, um, Indeed, uh, there are forecasts that there will be an increased demand for these minerals and that these minerals are the new oil uh, for these countries. Uh, so they, you know, so they, they started uh, plans or they already uh, acted on uh, increasing uh, royalties and taxes and building uh, budget forecasts that are very optimistic. The only problem is that the technologies haven't render their verdict yet. There is constant R&D effort to improve uh, the efficiency and durability of green technologies, such as, for instance, batteries. So we don't know exactly what mineral mix will be really on demand. So now we're talking about lithium and cobalt, but there is a lot of effort going on into possibly minimizing um, cobalt or moving into another type of uh, battery uh, that is not at all uh, requiring lithium. So, so for these countries, this is becoming incredibly difficult in terms of long-term planning. It's, it's um, you know, uh, maybe in five years we'll know more, but as of today, it's very hard to figure out um, what if, mineral will be still on demand as much as today, five years down the road, 10 years down the road. And when you think that the mine takes a lot of time to develop, that's, that's a problem. 
Mm. So, so what you're saying is that uh, some in the petroleum sector are essentially um, trying to attract investment while they can by providing, you know, perhaps more than expected friendly uh, regimes. But that in the minerals, it's more a question of technology because even though people speak of critical minerals, it's just because of the technology we know today. If it changes, those mm -hmm. minerals will not become critical. And so the, 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 the opportunity to, to try and leverage uh, those critical minerals uh, is based on the assumption of a certain technology and if that changes, that's it. And so governments are trying to, to strike the balance. Let me tell you what I think, uh, Perrin. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, as you know, I, I live here in Botswana and we have what most people will classify as a non-critical mineral, which is diamonds. Mm -hmm. But for us, it's critical because it's the hand that feeds us. So I think that maybe the problem comes from governments trying to assess the market and industry criticality of a mineral. My sense is that if governments take every resource as critical and manage it as if it's critical, which is to say, uh, look at the market and do the best to capitalize on the market, importing all of the best practice principles you, you uh, articulate, then we will be okay. But if they take a short-term view, assuming that there is a short-term window of opportunity, then I think they become more vulnerable uh, to mm -hmm. the market. But, 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 but that is by the by, because when people say minerals are critical, Perrin, iron ore is critical, and it has been. Every house you live in is structurally sound because of iron ore. Every road, every airport, every runway, every bridge. Mm -hmm. Nobody mm -hmm. thinks of iron ore as critical. What can be more critical? So I think this word critical is a little overstated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it is that overstatement, and in a way, it is that... Uh, that is misleading government because it forces government into thinking they have to think differently. Well, mm -hmm. here I am, Perrin. I say, no, they don't have to. They have to just stick mm. to the same old fiscal mm -hmm. policy discipline, the rules of engagement you have articulated. That way they are okay because mm -hmm. otherwise they, they run the era of overspending because they think, oh, there's a lot of money, when in effect, they should just average their expenditure as if there is no boom. It's the same exactly. principle. Yeah. Exactly. But anyway, so as you can see, I, I, I hold a different view, but the world will no doubt prove me wrong. So let's see how that works out. Here's your last <laughs> question. You know, there's been a lot of talk about carbon taxation, in part because of the decarbonization agenda. Do you see this becoming a major part of the fiscal policy framework uh, worldwide, or do you think it'll come and go? Oh, no, I think it will stay. It will become and it will stay. Um, in particular, because um, it's being seen as a major tool uh, to force industry transports um building sector to decarbonize um and uh countries and regions like europe for instance uh they are setting they are putting uh, they are setting a trend with this new mechanism that they are putting in place which is called the carbon border adjustment mechanism that will uh, start its rollout next year basically 
what it does, this mechanism, it's a tax that penalizes uh, imports from countries that don't have in place a relatively high carbon tax. Um, so it will, we, we think that it will generate uh, a proliferation of uh, carbon tax, which is already um, a trend that has increased massively in the past five to, to, to 10 years. Um, and then uh, the IMF that equips countries with fiscal models, in particular, the one uh, called FARI has now incorporated a carbon tax into its model so that countries can be encouraged to include it um, in the fiscal package. Well, that's fantastic, uh, Perrine. I've enjoyed speaking with you and thank you very much for taking time from your busy schedule to talk to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much, Sheila. I already enjoyed it very much. <laughs>